This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. The gunmen shot dead two Israelis and are now holding 20 athletes and six officials as hostages. The Lebanese Maronite Christian Phalangist Militar wrongly blamed the Palestinians for the assassination and murdered hundreds while the Israeli army was accused of standing by. Boys older than 15 were separated from their families and lined up against walls to be shot. In the pre-1967 borders, Israel was barely 10 miles wide at its narrowest point. The bulk of Israel's population lived within artillery range of hostile Arab armies. I am not about to ask Israel to live that way again. The new agreement, which will be signed today between the Israelis and the Palestinians, represents a wonderful opportunity to move the peace process forward. It is a product of hard work and the growing understanding by Israelis and Palestinians alike that the fulfillment of one side's aspirations must come with and not at the expense of the fulfillment of the other side's dreams. One strike hit a six-story building that Turkey says housed its state-run Andalou news agency. Ankara has condemned the Israeli strikes and called on the international community to take action to ease tensions. Gazan authorities say dozens of people were wounded and several killed in the bombings, amongst them a mother and baby. Israel blames Hamas for their deaths. Jerusalem, May 14, 2018. Politicians, dignitaries, and religious leaders gather to witness the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is there along with Steven Mnuchin, the American Secretary of the Treasury. President Donald Trump opens the gala with a recorded video message from Washington, D.C. Exactly 70 years ago, the United States, under President Harry Truman, became the first nation to recognize the state of Israel. Today, we officially open the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. Congratulations. It's been a long time coming. Almost immediately after declaring statehood in 1948, Israel designated the city of Jerusalem as its capital. The capital, the Jewish people, established in ancient times. So 40 miles important. away, a protest is brewing in the Gaza Strip where hundreds of Palestinians are gathered. The protests turn violent as several Palestinians, intent on breaching the border, are repelled by the Israeli Defense Forces. Overhead, Israeli drones fire tear gas at the Palestinians. Israeli soldiers shoot both rubber bullets and live ammunition into the crowds. Palestinians throw rocks and Molotov cocktails at the Israeli soldiers. When all is said and done, nearly 60 Palestinians are killed. None make it over the border, and the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem is open for business.
The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of the most complex, dynamic, and difficult situations in the entire world. Since it began over 80 years ago, it's been the cause of multiple wars, attacks, political upheavals, and social movements. The modern state of Israel is a small land, barely 25 miles across in some areas. Yet, politics, money, History and religion have combined to make it the focal point of the world. Our goal is not to shape your opinion about this crisis. Our goal is to explain the history behind this crisis. We don't have to argue one side over the other. A neutral presentation of the facts will be sufficient because, as the Quran says, truth stands clear from error. With this disclaimer out of the way, let us start from the very beginning. It begins with Abraham. Our story begins with Abraham, the spiritual father of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. According to the Bible, Abraham, or Ibrahim in Arabic, was born Abram in order of the Chaldees in modern-day Iraq. Abram means exalted father. Abram had a brother named Haran who had a son named Lot. As an adult, Abram married a woman named Sarai. Abram's tribe and his family worshipped wooden and stone idols, something he despised. He often found himself gazing into the night sky, pondering the celestial bodies above him. He briefly considered worshipping the stars or the moon or the sun. But he abandoned that idea when they inevitably disappeared from the sky. It was then that he realized it was one omnipotent, omniscient deity responsible for creating the universe. Abram challenged his people's practice of worshipping idols they created with their own hands. Once, he destroyed all of his tribe's idols except the largest one. When his people asked what happened, Abram pointed to the remaining idol. His people scoffed, knowing the idol could not speak. How do you worship something that neither benefits nor harms you? He asked them. Abram's people were fed up and decided to get rid of him. They tried burning him alive, but according to the Quran, God miraculously saved him. Abram, along with his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, decided it was time to go elsewhere. His people were not going to change and they had already tried to kill him. Abram first traveled to the lands of Canaan, south of Syria. However, Canaan was going through a drought at the time, so Abram continued on towards Egypt. His nephew Lot parted ways and headed towards the lands of Sodom and Gomorrah. Egypt had recently reunified after a period of internal strife. Though this Middle Kingdom period of Egypt had a strong central government, it was divided into provinces ruled by powerful clans. The chief of one of these clans used to kidnap foreign women and kill their husbands. When Abram learned this, he pretended to be Sarai's brother instead of her husband. The chief did kidnap Sarai, but when he tried to rape her, God intervened and protected her. Humiliated, the chief gave Sarai a handmaiden named Hagar, then expelled them all from his land. Abram returned to Canaan, now with Sarai and Hagar, but still without a child. Knowing how much her husband wanted a son, Sarai suggested he take Hagar to his bed. From this union, Abram's first child, Ishmael, was born. Jealousy and rivalry grew between the two women. 
God instructed Abram to take Hagar and Ishmael, who was still a baby, deeper into Arabia. Abram left Sarai behind while he, Hagar, and Ishmael continued down the Arabian coast. They finally stopped at a barren valley the locals called Bakka, about 700 miles from Canaan. Assuring Hagar that this was part of God's plan, Abram left her with a few provisions, then headed back to Canaan. Twelve and a half years later, Sarai, now called Sarah, gave birth to a son named Isaac. At the same time, God told Abraham that he would now be called Abraham. When Isaac was eight days old, he was circumcised just like his father and brother had been years before. Perhaps the most famous story concerning Isaac is God's order for his sacrifice. When Isaac was still a boy, God ordered Abraham to sacrifice him as a test of his obedience. Abraham obediently prepared to kill his son before God stopped him, told him it was just a test, and provided a ram for sacrifice instead. The Bible and the Quran agree on much of the story surrounding Abraham and his sons. However, there are three major differences in their narratives. First, the Bible states that God promised the lands of Canaan to Abraham's progeny specifically through the line of Isaac. Even though the Quran discusses Abraham's life in depth, it does not mention any such promise to either son. Second, in the biblical narrative, Ishmael and Isaac grow up together close to Abraham. Hagar was not sent away until Sarah became concerned about which son would inherit from Abraham. However, in the Islamic tradition, Hagar leaves while Ishmael is still a baby years before Isaac is born. There is no indication the two brothers ever met. Finally, the Quran also contains a story about Abraham sacrificing a son, but it doesn't specify which son. However, Muslims have traditionally held that it was Ishmael rather than Isaac. Most of what we know about Abraham and the Israelites comes from religious texts. There is very little secular evidence for any of it. Hence, your acceptance of these stories may depend on your religious tradition. Egypt At the age of 40, Isaac married Rebekah, who, just like his mother, was barren for many years. Isaac prayed to God for a child and was blessed with two of them, twins named Jacob and Esau. As the boys grew older, Isaac favored Esau while Rebekah favored Jacob. Being a few months older than his brother, Esau was to inherit all of Isaac's lands. But the Bible says Jacob tricked him out of his birthright and the brothers became enemies. According to the Bible, Jacob, now also known as Israel, married his cousin Rachel, then her older sister Leah, then their slaves Bilhah and Zilpah. From these four women, he had twelve sons who would become the fathers of the famous twelve tribes of Israel. However, Rachel was his favorite and she bore him his two favorite sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob's love for Joseph and Benjamin made the other sons jealous. One day, they took Joseph out hunting with them. But they sold him into slavery instead and then told their father he'd been killed by wild animals. 
Joseph wound up a slave in Egypt, which by this time had been conquered by foreigners from Western Asia called Hyksos. Joseph ingratiated himself with the Hyksos rulers when he saved the kingdom from a disastrous famine. Canaan, however, was not spared the famine, and before long, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt looking for food. After an awkward reunion, Joseph forgave his brothers and invited them and their families to settle in Egypt. In Egypt, Joseph, his brothers, and their families became known as Hebrews, meaning from the other side. The Hebrews flourished in Egypt and enjoyed a special status based on Joseph's close relationship with the Hyksos king. But a hundred years later, all of that changed. The Egyptians rose up against their foreign overlords and drove the Hyksos out. The re-established Egyptian monarchy now saw the Hebrews as collaborators with foreign oppressors. As punishment, the Hebrews were turned into slaves and would remain so for another two centuries. Despite their enslavement, the Hebrews multiplied rapidly. The Egyptian government recognized this threat and passed a law declaring all newborn Hebrew boys were to be killed. It is within this era of humiliation that Moses was born to the tribe of Levi. Moses' mother placed him in a basket and set him in the Nile River to escape the Egyptian law. Baby Moses was found by a member of the royal household and raised as an Egyptian prince. As a young man, Moses witnessed the despair the Hebrews lived under in Egypt. When he saw an Egyptian official beating a Hebrew slave, he struck the official, killing him. Moses was now a wanted man and fled Egypt for the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. He was taken in by an old man living in the area, served him for many years, and eventually married one of his daughters. One day, while walking with his family and animals in Sinai, Moses saw a burning bush. When he went to investigate, God spoke to Moses and informed him he was his prophet. God ordered Moses to rescue the Hebrews from Egyptian cruelty. Together with his brother Aaron, Moses confronted the Egyptian king known as Pharaoh. He warned Pharaoh of God's wrath and commandment to free the Hebrews. When Pharaoh refused, God sent divine punishments on Egypt. This continued for some time until God instructed Moses to take his people and leave Egypt altogether. Even though the Hebrews successfully escaped Egyptian slavery, they could not escape their mental shackles. Hence, they wandered through the wilderness of Arabia and the Levant for another 40 years. During this time, Moses and his brother Aaron both died. Moses' apprentice, Joshua, from the tribe of Ephraim, became the leader of the Hebrews. Munich, West Germany, September 5, 1972. Eight members of Black September, a radical offshoot of the Fatah party, infiltrate the Olympic Village. Inside, several Olympic athletes are sleeping. The intruders kill two members of the Israeli Olympic team and take eight others hostage. They demand the governments of Israel and Germany release over 200 Palestinian prisoners. Black September finally accepts a German offer to fly them and the hostages to Cairo. As they prepare to board helicopters at a local airport, German police snipers open fire. 
A shootout ensues and things quickly get out of control in the dark airport. A terrorist sprays gunfire at the Israeli athletes who are tied up inside a helicopter. Then he pulls the pin from a grenade and tosses it inside. When the shooting stops, 11 Israelis, 5 terrorists, and 1 German police officer are dead. Canaan Joshua led the Israelites in a successful invasion of the land of Canaan. Canaan, which covers much of modern Israel, Palestine, and Lebanon, was inhabited by various peoples including a group called the Philistines. Joshua divided the conquered territory among the descendants of the twelve sons of Jacob. Each tribe operated independently from the others, though they often cooperated in matters of mutual interest. This began the biblical period of Judges, which lasted about 300 years. During this period, the Israelites fell into a devastating cycle. They would adopt the ways of their enemies, even worshipping pagan deities. God would send a punishment on the Israelites, usually in the form of an invasion from one of their enemies. The Israelites would repent and God would send a judge or prophet to deliver them. Once that judge had fulfilled his role or was killed, the Israelites would fall into sin again, and the cycle would start all over. Samuel, from the tribe of Levi, was the last of these judges. He emerged at a time when much of the Israelite land had been occupied by the Philistines. Samuel preached for nearly 20 years before leading a successful revolt which drove the Philistines out. After this, the Israelite tribes decided they needed a king to unite them against their enemies. Samuel anointed Saul from the tribe of Benjamin as the first Israelite king. Saul's reign as king started off well. He led successful campaigns against the Philistines, Amalekites, Moabites, and Ammonites. But the pressure of kingship and the criticism of his rule caused Saul to become more withdrawn. To soothe his nerves, he appointed a young shepherd named David as his personal musician. David, from the tribe of Judah, also made a name for himself on the battlefield. It all began when the Philistines amassed for another invasion, this time bringing their champion, a large man named Goliath. David killed Goliath with a slingshot to the face and rocketed to fame. In subsequent battles, David continued to show his fighting skills and became Israel's most popular warrior. When King Saul and his son were killed in battle, David was eventually chosen as the king of Israel. David continued to fight Israel's enemies, expanding its territories and increasing its wealth. This culminated with his successful siege and conquest of the city of Jerusalem. Since Jerusalem was a neutral city not belonging to any specific Israelite tribe, David chose it to be his capital. David had the Ark of the Covenant, containing the ancient tablets God sent to Moses, brought to Jerusalem. He intended to build a temple around the Ark dedicated to the worship of God. Meanwhile, David's wife Bathsheba bore him a son named Solomon. The Bible tells an interesting story about David and Bathsheba's relationship. Though Muslims generally reject this story, we will mention it for your consideration. According to the Bible, David had an affair with Bathsheba while she was still married to another man. 
David then had her husband sent to the front lines with the hardest fighting and no support. When her husband was killed, David was free to marry Bathsheba who was pregnant with his child. Because of this sin, God forbade David from building the temple. The first child from this union did not live long. Solomon was their second son born after they were married. King Solomon ascended the throne at 15 years of age and ruled until he was about 60 years old. During his reign, the kingdom of Israel experienced a golden age, reaching its height and wealth, influence, and territory. As king, Solomon initiated several building projects and concluded various trade deals. His most famous building was the Temple of Solomon, which fulfilled his father's wish. The temple was built atop Mount Moriah, which the Bible states was where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. King Solomon increased the kingdom's wealth with various trade and export deals. One of his most famous dealings was with Belkis, the Queen of Sheba in the Horn of Africa. The Bible and the Quran both confirm Belkis visited Solomon in Jerusalem and became his ally. Whether this was through marriage or diplomatic means is not certain. Interestingly, Ethiopian tradition states they did have a son together named Menelik. Menelik ascended the throne as king of Sheba and ruled according to Hebrew tradition. Centuries later, his descendants converted to Christianity. One of these Christian kings would later provide safety to a band of Arab refugees escaping religious persecution. Israel's golden age would not last. Upon Solomon's death, the kingdom split in two. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The two kingdoms never reunited. Babylon In 732 BCE, the kingdom of Israel threatened the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah appealed to the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians invaded Israel, exiling most of its inhabitants and turning the kingdom into a colony. The kingdom of Judah continued to exist independently for another 200 years. During this period, the Israelites renewed their cycle of rebellion against God. Some even went so far as to sacrifice their children to pagan deities. Several prophets came during this time to warn them of God's wrath. These prophets included Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both lived to see their prophecies of doom come true. 500 miles east of Jerusalem, the Babylonian Empire began to expand westward. To thwart the Babylonians, the Egyptians seized land in the Levant and Syria. At first, the tiny kingdom of Judah sided with the Babylonians. The Babylonians attempted to invade Egyptian territory and were severely defeated. The kingdom of Judah then switched allegiance to the Egyptians. That was a big mistake. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II, consolidated his forces and relaunched his campaign against the Egyptians. He defeated the Egyptians, driving them out of Syria for good. Then he turned his sights on the traitorous kingdom of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, which eventually fell in 597 BCE. He deported thousands of Israelites to Babylon, stripped Solomon's temple of his treasures, and installed a puppet king. 
Twelve years later, this puppet king also rebelled against Babylon again, allying with the Egyptians. Jerusalem was once again put under siege, this time for nearly two years. When the city fell, Nebuchadnezzar showed no mercy. The king was forced to watch as his sons were killed. Then he was blinded and imprisoned for life. The city was plundered and razed. Solomon's temple was destroyed. Most of the city's inhabitants were carried off to Babylon as slaves. This ended the kingdom of Judah, which became a province of the Babylonian Empire. Nonetheless, the former citizens of Judah continued to call themselves Yehudi, meaning from Judah. No one knows exactly what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Some believe Nebuchadnezzar took it to Babylon. Others say Israelite priests hid it under the ruins of Solomon's temple. Still others say it was sent south to Abyssinia to be protected by the descendants of King Menelik. Fifty years later, it was Babylon's turn to be invaded. Cyrus the Great, founder of the Achaemenid dynasty of Persia, was busy creating the world's largest empire and Babylon was in the way. In 539 BCE, Cyrus captured Babylon and absorbed it within his empire. When Babylon fell, he freed the Israelites, allowing them to return to their home in Judah. Though most returned, some remained in Babylon. These would be the ancestors of today's Iraqi Jews. Over the next several decades, various groups of Israelites worked to rebuild Solomon's temple. It was finally completed during the reign of Persia's greatest king, Darius I. Rome Two hundred years after Cyrus's death, the Achaemenid Empire faced a new challenger. A young prince named Alexander from the Greek kingdom of Macedon waged a brutal war against the Persians. Alexander the Great wound up conquering most of the Persian Empire, including the lands of Judah. When Alexander died suddenly at the age of 32, his empire, which stretched from Greece to India, fell into civil war. When the dust settled, Judea was part of the Seleucid Empire, named after one of Alexander's generals. 145 years later, in 167 BCE, the Seleucid Empire outlawed the Jewish religion and the Yehudi were ordered to worship Greek idols. The Yehudi revolted against the Seleucid Empire in what became known as the Maccabean Revolt. Within two years, they had successfully created an independent Jewish state. The victorious Yehudi wanted to cleanse and rededicate their temple which had been defiled by pagan sacrifices. But they needed pure oil to do so and there was only enough to last one day. Miraculously, the oil lasted eight days, giving them time to prepare a fresh batch of kosher oil. This miracle is commemorated in an annual celebration called Hanukkah. This new Jewish state lasted for about a century before the Roman general, Pompey the Great, invaded and turned it into a client state. Pompey's rival, Julius Caesar, helped Judea briefly gain its independence. But in the ensuing chaos of Julius Caesar's assassination, Judea fell into civil war. Finally, in 37 BCE, the Roman general Mark Antony subdued Judea and installed the puppet king, Herod the Great. By 6 BCE, Judea was part of the Roman Empire and the Yehudi 
were Roman subjects. Centuries of sinful practices, divine punishment, and foreign domination had forced the Yehudi to do some self-reflection. Jewish thought began to divide along several paths. The Sadducees and Pharisees were two Jewish philosophical groups that differed on how to interpret the Torah. And then there were the Essenes who lived an aesthetic life of voluntary poverty. Finally, there were the Zealots who believed they had to throw off their pagan Roman overlords and establish a Jewish state based on God's law. The Gaza Strip, December 8, 1987 An Israeli military truck runs into a passenger van near a Palestinian refugee camp. Four passengers, all Palestinian, are killed. In the wake of the accident, riots and protests break out. These protests are led by young Palestinians who are convinced the accident was no accident. And with the secular leadership of the PLO in exile, these protests take on a religious bent. Palestinian youth, armed with bricks and stones and the occasional Molotov cocktail, confront Israeli soldiers in tanks. This is the first Palestinian Intifada. It lasts six years, during which 1,200 Palestinians are killed and tens of thousands are injured. The Disciples of Christ It should come as no surprise that there were many religious teachers, preachers, and holy men during this period of self-reflection. One of these teachers was named Yeshua, or Joshua, from the tribe of Judah. Yeshua's message was different from the other religious gurus running around Judea at the time. He preached a message of love and peace to his fellow Yehudi. Yeshua also rejected the rigid fundamentalism of the Jewish priests and he attracted many with his apocalyptic warnings of divine judgment and punishment. But Yeshua alienated many Jews when he claimed to be a prophet born from a miraculous birth. Ultimately, the fundamentalists and the radicals united against Yeshua, accusing him of claiming to be God's son and king of the Yehudi. Yeshua was delivered to the Roman authorities who found him guilty of sedition and sentenced him to death by crucifixion. At this point, the three monotheistic religions diverge as to what happened next. Christians believe Yeshua was crucified and his death was the fulfillment of God's promise to forgive mankind. Muslims believe God saved Yeshua from execution just like he saved Abraham centuries earlier. Jews don't believe God had anything to do with it at all. They believe Yeshua was just one of the many preachers in Judea at that time. In the years to come, the small sect of Jews that followed Yeshua's teachings were persecuted by the fundamentalist Jews. Several years after Yeshua's trial, one of these fundamentalists had a change of heart and joined the sect. He changed his name to Paul and began spreading his understanding of Yeshua's message beyond Judea. Paul also advocated preaching to non-Jews, a radical idea at the time. Paul eventually made it to Rome where he laid the groundwork for a church dedicated to the teachings of Yeshua the Anointed or Isus Christus in Latin. Paul's teachings of a deified Isus who had died for man's sins began to catch on. Paul's practice of preaching to the Gentiles was also proving effective. 
not limited to a single ethnic group, these disciples of Christ, as they called themselves, were spreading throughout Europe. Diaspora While Paul was spreading the teachings of Isus, tensions were rising between the Yehudi and the Roman government. Julius Caesar had established the Yehudi as a special category of Roman subjects. He gave them the freedom to practice their faith and even granted them a certain level of self-governance. Now, the Roman Empire levied increasingly higher taxes and encroached on Jewish religious liberties. In response, some of the more radical Yehudi began attacking and killing Roman citizens. The Romans responded with heavy punitive measures which only further radicalized the Yehudi. In 66 CE, this exploded in a Jewish revolt against Roman rule. It took several years, but Rome finally suppressed the rebellion in 73 CE. Like Nebuchadnezzar centuries earlier, the Romans showed no mercy. The Romans sacked the second temple and looted its treasures. Then they destroyed the temple, leaving only its western wall standing. Thousands of Jews were killed or enslaved. A handful of Jewish rebels managed to escape the onslaught and occupied a fortress atop a high rock plateau called Masada. It took nearly a year for Roman military engineers to design and build a ramp to reach Masada. When they finally entered the fortress, they found all of the rebels had committed suicide. Sixty years later, another Jewish rebellion broke out. The Bar Kokhba revolt of 132 CE, however, was much more successful than the previous one. The Yehudi managed to briefly carve out an independent state. Nonetheless, the Romans eventually crushed the rebellion. This time, the Roman crackdown was especially vindictive. They put thousands of Yehudi around the empire to death, nearly wiping out the entire Jewish population. As further punishment, the Romans banned the Yehudi from re-entering Jerusalem and renamed Judea to Syria-Palestina. Unable to return to Jerusalem, the surviving Yehudi resettled in different parts of the Roman Empire. For most Yehudi, this was somewhere in Europe. Some, however, moved deeper into the Arabian Peninsula and established communities amongst their Arab cousins. The Children of Ishmael While the children of Isaac were building kingdoms and fighting empires, the children of Ishmael were heading in a much less dramatic direction. When tensions grew between Abraham's two wives, God directed him to resettle his Egyptian wife, Hagar, in Arabia. Abraham left Hagar and Ishmael in the barren valley of Baca with a few provisions which soon ran out. According to Islamic tradition, when Ishmael began crying from thirst and hunger, Hagar went looking for help. While running between two small hills, God brought forth a miraculous well and water began flowing over the hot sands. Hagar, naturally surprised and elated, tried to contain the flow of water with her hands, repeating, Zomme, Zomme, meaning, stop flowing. But the water did not stop flowing. One can just imagine Hagar's joy and frustration as she tried to contain the flow of water by building barriers of sand with her bare hands. The miraculous water allowed Hagar to provide for herself and her baby Ishmael. Soon, little green sprouts began to shoot out of the moist sands. The plants attracted insects and the insects attracted birds. Miles away, a group of Bedouins noticed the birds flying over Hagar's little camp. 
The Bedouins were familiar with all of the oases in the area and knew there wasn't one over there. Curious, they investigated and met Hagar and little Ishmael. Perhaps the Bedouins misunderstood Hagar when she shouted at the stubborn water to stop flowing. Whatever the case, Hagar gave them permission to water their animals at the well they now called Zamzam. Over time, more Bedouins would stop at this newfound oasis. Some would water their animals and move on. Others, tired of the nomadic lifestyle, chose to settle right there in Baca. These newly settled Bedouins eventually took a liking to Hagar's son Ishmael, whom they took in as one of their own. They taught him their language and even let him marry their daughters when he grew older. They even listened when he encouraged them to worship the one true God who had befriended his father. And though it wasn't often, Abraham did travel the 700 miles from Canaan to visit his son when he could. They even took the time to construct a small temple together. This was the first building dedicated to worshiping the God of Abraham. This building was little more than four walls in a rough rectangular shape. It had no roof, no paint, and no covering. The only thing unique about the building was the smooth black stone in its corner which had fallen from the sky. Despite its rather plain appearance, the Bedouins grew to love the little temple. Those that did not remain in Bukka would make a point to come visit at least once a year. Many of them even accepted Ishmael's monotheistic faith and followed him as a prophet of God. The ancestors of these Bedouins had actually originated from the Horn of Africa before crossing over to the southern tip of Arabia. By the time of Hagar and Ishmael, they had spread throughout Arabia, even establishing powerful kingdoms such as the Ad and Thamud. The various nomadic tribes of Arabia spoke several different languages and dialects. But over time, the dialect of the northern Arab tribes, with its proximity to Syria, Judea, and Egypt, grew dominant. This is the form of Arabic that took hold in Mecca, the city that grew from Hagar's camp. And while these northern Arabs did not seem to care much for sculpture or painting or other visual arts, they loved poetry. A culture of poetry developed around the language which permeated Arab society at all levels. Both Bedouins and townsfolk composed poetry extolling their lineage, lamenting forsaken love, and honoring their warriors. But desert life was also difficult. Even the relatively cosmopolitan Arabs of Mecca could not escape the brutality of this life. Food was simple, water was scarce, and life was short. In such an environment, family and honor took precedence. The simplest disagreement could spark generations of violence between clans. And with the absence of larger empires and established legal structure, rule of law was almost non-existent. Slaves, foreigners, and women were at the mercy of men from powerful clans. In Mecca, a form of oligarchy took shape where the male leaders of the various clans of the Quraysh tribe ran everything. Within a few centuries of his death, most of the Arabs had abandoned Ishmael's religion and were pagan. They had a pantheon of deities headlined by the goddesses known as Alat and Al-Uzza. Even the Kaaba, the temple that Abraham and Ishmael had built, was now filled with an assortment of pagan idols. The Arabs were not ignorant of monotheism. Several Yehudi who survived the Roman purge had settled in Arabia and created their own communities. 
Many northern Arab tribes had accepted Christianity and Arabized the Latin name Isus to Isa. There were even a handful of Arabs who rejected paganism and practiced a form of monotheism. And the pagan Arabs continued to maintain the Abrahamic tradition of circumcision. In the first decade of the 7th century, a man named Muhammad began preaching in Mecca. Muhammad told his fellow Quraysh that he was a prophet of God and received divine revelations. These revelations, collectively called the Qur'an, emphasize strict monotheism similar to Judaism. However, Muhammad's teachings, called Islam, was open to people of all backgrounds like Christianity. The Qurayshi oligarchy of Mecca violently opposed Muhammad's mission, stifling Islam's growth. After 13 years of preaching, he had less than 300 followers. But things changed when two warring clans from a small village called Yathrib accepted Islam. They made Muhammad their leader, hoping he could bring some stability to their homeland after years of fighting. Muhammad did much more than that. Islam flourished in Yathrib, which was renamed Madinatun Nabi, or the City of the Prophet. Medina, as it came to be known, was at the center of a new chapter of human history. Through a deft combination of warfare, politics, and preaching, Muhammad united the Arabs under the banner of Islam. Muhammad's followers, called Muslims, would eventually capture Mecca and cleanse the Kaaba of the pagan idols. After Muhammad's death, his successors, known as Caliphs, continued Islam's expansion. Islam flowed out of Arabia across Persia, the Levant, and into Egypt. Even Jerusalem was absorbed into the growing Muslim empire. After the first three caliphs, a period of internal strife and civil war interrupted Islam's progress. Ultimately, the Umayyad clan of the Quraysh would establish Islam's first true dynasty. The Umayyad Caliphate would continue to grow, spreading across North Africa over the Bering Strait and into southern Iberia. To the east, Islam spread from Persia into Afghanistan and on into the Indian subcontinent. Warfare, trade, and marriage propelled Islam further, even after the fall of the Umayyads. And as Islam grew to encompass more people, Arab hegemony eroded. Powerful Islamic states in Persia, Africa, and Asia grew to prominence without any Arab leaders. Nonetheless, the Qur'an and the Arabic language in which it was revealed remained at the center of Islamic life. Despite Islam's impressive growth, size, and resiliency, it was always hampered by incessant, irreversible, illogical factionalism. Since the days of the early caliphs, various Muslim groups had fought each other over the right to lead the Muslim world. Muslims were further divided along ideological, ethnic, and tribal lines. Sunnis and Shiites fought each other over trivial differences. The Umayyad dynasty was propped up by a system that treated non-Arabs as second-class citizens. Even the Arabs weren't united. A long-standing feud between northern and southern Arabs underscored many political upheavals in the Muslim world. By the dawn of the 10th century, the Muslim world was split between two caliphs and several smaller states. In Baghdad, the Abbasid Caliphate, which had overthrown the Umayyads, held nominal rule over the Sunni branch of Islam. Meanwhile, in Cairo, the Fatimid Caliphate ruled over much of North Africa and the Levant. 
The Fatimids were a branch of Ismailis who themselves were a branch of Shiites who had split off from the Sunnis. The divisions grew worse when the mighty Seljuk Empire, which ruled over much of Persia and the Middle East, descended into civil war. In the midst of this chaos, an army of Christian warriors, mostly originating from France, invaded the Middle East. These crusaders, as they came to be known, were intent on capturing Jerusalem from the infidel Saracens. The crusaders were successful, besieging and pillaging Jerusalem in 1099, killing thousands of Muslims and Jews in the process. Despite their success, the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem was short-lived. Less than a century later, a new Muslim hero was on the rise. Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the Western world as Saladin, was a Kurdish ruler and general. Using shrewd politics and a devastating war machine, he united the various Muslim factions in the region under his rule. Then he drove the crusaders out of Jerusalem, reclaiming the city for Islam in 1187. Jerusalem, September 28, 2000 Israeli politician and government opposition leader Ariel Sharon visits the Temple Mount. The 72-year-old Sharon is a war hawk. As Israeli defense minister, he was primarily responsible for the Sabra and Shatila massacre of 1982, earning him the moniker Butcher of Beirut. Sharon's visit to the Temple Mount is seen as controversial and provocative, even deliberately so. After Sharon leaves, Palestinians demonstrate in front of Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israeli police respond and violence soon follows. Palestinian demonstrators throw rocks and the police fire back with tear gas and rubber bullets. Over the next two days, the riots continue to spread and escalate. They are highlighted by video footage of a Palestinian man shielding his son from Israeli gunfire. The video captures the young boy, Mohammed al dura screaming as bullets ricochet about him. The man desperately tries to put himself between the boy and the bullets. The video clip ends with the father sitting against the wall, dazed, his head slumped over. The boy lies dead at his feet. The People of the Book the first Jews who moved to Europe must have been surprised by the growth of the obscure sect that followed Isus Christus. Outsiders called them Christians and often viewed them with mistrust. Like other Jews, these Christians sometimes faced persecution from their neighbors and the Roman government. But that did not stop the growth of this new sect, which increasingly sought to differentiate itself from other Jews. As the community grew, its leaders clarified the tenets of their belief system, slowly creating a new identity for itself. The worship of Isus became a primary tenet of the Christian faith as well as the belief that he died for man's sins. The Jewish kosher laws were gradually abandoned, and focus shifted away from Jerusalem and towards their headquarters in Rome. The Christian faith got a major boost when Emperor Constantine converted in 312 CE. Constantine legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire and used state resources to accelerate its growth and development. 62 years after Constantine, Emperor Theodosius I made Christianity the official state religion. This altered the relationship between Christianity and Judaism.
The tide had changed, and now it was better to be a Christian in the Roman Empire than not. Jews who refused to convert to Christianity were persecuted, oppressed, and forced to live in segregated neighborhoods called ghettos. As the Roman Empire weakened and broke into various smaller states, it became easier and more acceptable to persecute Jews. European Jews were forced to make the most of their dire situation. They created thriving businesses, often cornering entire industries. They excelled at entertaining themselves and became minstrels and performers. They channeled their suffering into their art and created great masterpieces. When European rulers needed money for special projects or to wage wars, they often turned to the Jewish community. Even though Christian law forbade usury, Jewish law allowed them to offer interest-bearing loans to Gentiles. While this helped some Jewish families attain incredible wealth, it sometimes backfired. When a king did not want to repay his debts, he could solve his problem by kicking the Jews out of his land. If European Jews weren't being expelled from their homes, they had to worry about violent anti-Jewish riots. Sometimes these pogroms were state-sanctioned, other times they were just random acts of mass violence. These increased in the religious fanaticism that engulfed Europe following the Crusades. In 1182, King Philip of France ordered all Jews to leave the country and confiscated their property. In 1190, the entire Jewish community of York, England was killed in anti-Semitic riots. In 1215, the Pope ordered all Jews in Christian Europe to wear badges to distinguish them from Christians. In 1349, Jews in Basel, Switzerland were blamed for the Black Death sweeping through Europe. 600 Jews were burned at the stake and their children forced to convert to Christianity. Jewish philosophy and culture flourished in many parts of the Middle East, including Baghdad, Damascus, and Cairo. But the only place European Jews thrived was in the Muslim-controlled regions of Iberia, today Spain and Portugal. Despite the jizya, taxes imposed on non-Muslims, Jews flocked to Iberia to live under Muslim rule. European Jews in Spain were joined by Jews from the Middle East, creating a dynamic cultural explosion. This Jewish golden age came to a crashing halt in 1492 when Grenada, the last Muslim kingdom in Spain, fell to the Christians. After that, Jews, like their Muslim counterparts, had to leave the country, convert to Christianity, or put to death. That same year, Columbus's voyage to the Americas kicked off the Age of Discovery. And with the subsequent colonization of the Americas, the wealth and power of Christian Europe grew exponentially. European empires stretched across oceans into the Americas, Asia, and Africa. The Age of Discovery gave way to the Age of Enlightenment, which brought relief for some Jews. As religion played less of a role in European politics, restrictions against Jewish activities were relaxed. By the late 18th century, both Britain and France had passed laws protecting Jewish rights. However, a cultural stigma against Jews persisted in these nations. And in other parts of Europe, Jews were still heavily persecuted. The Ottoman Empire When Columbus crossed the ocean, the Muslim Ottoman Empire was one of the most powerful regimes in the world. All three Islamic holy cities, Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem were within its borders. 
However, by the middle of the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire was known as the sick man of Europe. Internal rivalries, poor management, and ineffective government had led to an empire that was crumbling at the edges. The slow disintegration was exemplified in both internal and external threats. A significant external threat came from France in the form of Napoleon Bonaparte. To limit British trade access to India, Napoleon invaded Egypt in 1798, defeating the Ottoman garrisons at Alexandria and Cairo. From there, Napoleon marched east and besieged the town of Jaffa near modern-day Tel Aviv. Napoleon then marched on the coastal town of Acre near the Israel-Lebanon border. Napoleon laid siege to the city expecting it to fall within two weeks. But the Ottoman governor, Jazar Pasha, and his Jewish advisor, Haim Farhi, put up a stubborn defense. British naval bombardment exacerbated the damage on Napoleon's troops who finally called off the siege after six weeks. Political unrest back home forced Napoleon to abandon his Mediterranean campaign. In the ensuing power vacuum, the Albanian Muhammad Ali emerged as the ruler of Egypt. This sparked a series of internal conflicts in the region. A coalition of Ayan, or nobles, in Jerusalem revolted against the Ottomans in 1808 and 1826. In 1831, Muhammad Ali's son, Ibrahim Pasha, waged war against the Ottomans in Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria. The Ottomans turned to the Russians for help against Egypt. This alarmed the other European powers who were concerned about Russian influence in the region. In 1840, the British intervened and Egypt was forced to withdraw. In the wake of this chaos, the Ottomans initiated various land reforms to appease the Palestinian Ayan. These reforms gave the Ayan huge tracts of land which they ruled over as feudal lords. In 1882, the British got involved in the Middle East again. This time, they joined forces with the French to put down a rebellion against the local Egyptian rulers. After order was restored, the British established a garrison in Egypt ostensibly to protect the ruling family and British civilians. However, the British would remain in Egypt for the next 70 years. Arab nationalism, which had fueled this 1882 rebellion, was now on the rise. In 1905, a Christian Arab named Najib Azuri published The Awakening of the Arab Nation, a manifesto encouraging Arabs to secede from the Ottoman Empire. Another prominent Arab nationalist was Abdurrahman al-Kawqabi, who wrote two books demanding Arabs retake the caliphate from the Ottomans. At the same time, Turkish nationalism was also brewing. In the early 1900s, the Ottoman parliament was taken over by the Young Turks, a political coalition of Turkish nationalists. Not surprisingly, the desires of the Turkish nationalists ran counter to the desires of the Arab nationalists. Palestine While the plight of European Jews in Western Europe improved significantly, things were not so great for Jews in Eastern Europe. Rumors of Jewish involvement in the assassination of Tsar Alexander II sparked anti-Jewish riots in Russia. One Jewish woman was connected to the plot. However, the other eight conspirators were atheists with no Jewish heritage. 
This anti-Semitic violence prompted a group of Jewish thinkers to issue the Bilu Manifesto in 1882. This proclamation petitioned the Ottoman Sultan for an autonomous settlement in Palestine. It is not clear if the Ottoman Sultan ever received the manifesto or granted their request. Nonetheless, this was the first official document calling for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. In 1894, the Dreyfus Affair rocked the world and exposed just how deep European anti-Semitism ran. Captain Alfred Dreyfus was a Jewish artillery officer in the French military. In 1894, he was convicted of espionage and given a life sentence on Devil's Island, a French penal colony off the coast of South America. Two years later, evidence came out exonerating Dreyfus. Even though the French military tried to suppress it, the information still leaked. The evidence and the cover-up divided French society. Ultimately, Alfred Dreyfus was pardoned, released, and reinstated in the military in 1906. But this whole affair convinced Theodore Herzl that Jews could never find justice in Europe. Theodore Herzl was the founder of Zionism, a political movement to create a Jewish state in Palestine. Theodore Herzl was born in Austro-Hungary and experienced firsthand the extreme anti-Semitism of Eastern Europe. As an adult, he moved to Paris expecting the French to be more egalitarian and progressive. But the Dreyfus Affair convinced Theodor Herzl that an independent Jewish homeland was the only solution. If Jews couldn't find justice in liberal, progressive France, then there was no place for them except their own home. Though Theodor Herzl never made it to Palestine himself, his ideas on Zionism had taken root. Jews from throughout the diaspora began immigrating to Palestine. This migration, called Aliyah, took place over several decades. The first Aliyah lasted from 1882 to 1903 when nearly 30,000 Jews migrated to Palestine. The second Aliyah was from 1904 to 1914 and brought another 33,000 Jews to the region. The Jewish immigrants purchased land from the Palestinian Ayan who needed cash to buy European manufactured goods. However, the new landowners had no desire to be feudal lords. The Palestinian peasants who had worked the lands for generations often had no choice but to leave. Between 1908 and 1913, the Jewish National Fund brought over 10,000 acres of farmland, leading to the eviction of thousands of Arab peasants. These migrations altered the demographics of the region. And at first, the Ottomans did not mind. You see, in 1800, Jerusalem was predominantly Muslim. Jews were a minority, barely numbering 2,000. However, the Palestinian Ayan revolts of the early 1800s had influenced Ottoman thinking. They believed Christians and Jews were less likely to revolt than Muslims. Therefore, they encouraged Jewish migration to Palestine to mitigate the power of the Ayan. By 1870, the Jewish population in Jerusalem had grown to 22,000. By 1910, Jews were a clear majority, followed by Christians and then Muslims. In one century, Muslims had gone from the majority to one of several minorities. The Jewish immigrants to Palestine brought technology and science with them from Europe. 
While most native Palestinian Arabs were still living as nomads and farmers, the Jewish immigrants were building modern cities powered by electricity. In 1907, Jewish settlers in Palestine formed a militia group called Bargoria to protect the new settlements from the Arabs. In 1909, Tel Aviv was founded as the first all-Jewish city in Palestine. In 1912, the cornerstone for Technion Israel Institute of Technology was laid. Around this time, linguist Eliezer ben Yehuda revived Hebrew as a spoken language. This modern Hebrew would eventually become the national language of the Jewish immigrants. Jerusalem was growing larger and attracting international investment. The influx of wealth brought competition and rekindled the centuries-old rivalry between northern and southern Arabs. We can only speculate what would have happened had this trend continued. Would the Palestinian Jewish community have lobbied the Ottoman government for more autonomy? Would they have campaigned or even fought for full independence? Or would they have been satisfied with being a Jewish province within the slowly decaying Ottoman Empire? We will never know. The fate of Palestine was forever altered by the actions of a single man in Yugoslavia 1,200 miles away. June 28, 1914. Sarajevo, Bosnia. Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife are riding in the back of their Austrian-made Grafton Stift automobile with the top down. Earlier that day, several members of their entourage were injured in an attack by Serbian nationalists. As they wind through the city streets, the driver realizes he's going the wrong way. He immediately throws the car into reverse. But in 1914, automobile engines just weren't reliable. The car stalls out in front of a local delicatessen. While the driver gets out to inspect the engine, no one notices the man walking towards the car. It is Gavrilo Princip, a Serbian nationalist who took part in the attack on the motorcade earlier. Gavrilo cannot believe the man he failed to kill that morning is right in front of him. Gavrilo shoots the Archduke in the neck, then turns to shoot the Austrian governor of Bosnia. But his aim is off, and instead, he shoots the Archduke's wife in the stomach. He then points the gun at himself, but before he can pull the trigger, he's tackled to the ground. Gavrilo Princip doesn't know it yet, but he's just lit the flame that would become the inferno known as World War I. And the Middle East would never be the same. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Palestine to find other episodes related to this topic. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. If you stay tuned, you'll hear a short clip from one of these exclusive episodes in a few minutes. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Karsaroj for his research and support of the show. 
and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this episode, we will be, this will actually be the final episode of Mukhtar's Rebellion. This is part six of Mukhtar's Rebellion, which is actually episode 16 of the overall Ibn Zubair series. So, before we get into the meat of the show, let's get a recap of where we are so far. In the previous episode, we discussed the Battle of Harura. We mentioned how Ibn Zubair had appointed his brother Musab ibn Zubair as the new governor of Basra. Musab ibn Zubair then led a combined force of Basra and angry Ashra from Kufa. Musab's forces engaged with Mukhtar's forces at a village just outside of Kufa called Harura, which is where the, the name of the battle comes from. Musab's forces are victorious and they defeat Mukhtar and many of Mukhtar's forces who were mostly, many of whom were former slaves and Mawali, plural for Maula. They were slaughtered and killed by Musab's men who show no mercy and just chase down and really uh, hunt down the fleeing Shiites. Mukhtar, however, and his remaining forces, they retreat back into Kufa and barricade themselves inside Dadal Imara, which is near Kufa's market. And of course, Dadal Imara means the house of command, or more appropriately, the governor's house. So the Mukhtar inside of Dadal Imara, a long siege began. Musab ibn Zubair, he positioned his army between Darul Imara and the market of Kufa. As you mentioned, Darul Imara was close to the market. Musab ibn Zubair, he wanted to cut off any provisions from reaching Mukhtar. He almost certainly expected Mukhtar to have provisions within him, within the uh, Darul Imara, within the building. But at some point in time, that would run out, and he just wanted to wait him out. At first, as the siege was going on, at first, the wives of Mukhtar's men, they were able to smuggle food into Darul Imara, but eventually Musab ibn Zubair, he learned about that and he began intercepting the women as they brought food to uh, Mukhtar's men. And as the siege dragged on, the people of Kufa also turned against Mukhtar and they began chasing away anyone who came near Dalo Imara to help Mukhtar. They will throw stones or filthy water out the buildings on anyone approaching Dalo Imara. Presumably, these were buildings that had more than one story. And so as people would try to sneak into Dado Imara, somebody would throw dirty water. Oh, Lord knows what kind of stuff was in that water on them, chasing them away. Also, Musab had archers positioned in the surrounding buildings. And so if any of Mukhtar's men ventured out or poked their head out, they would suddenly start shooting arrows at them and chase them right back into the building. 
Every now and then, while the siege was dragging out, every now and then, Mukhtar's men would launch some desperate attempt to break through the siege, but each time they were not able to inflict any real damage and had to rush back into the building and not they were not able to do any good. So the siege lasted for about four months and within the building, within Dado Imara, Mukhtar knew he was defeated. But even though he was defeated, he still had to give himself some sort of justification um, or some sort of, I don't know, maybe glorification about his accomplishments. He compared himself to the other Arab leaders of that time during this period of uh, confusion and chaos in the Muslim world. He mentioned how Marwan ibn al-Hakam had taken Syria how Ibn Zubair had taken the Hejaz, how the Khawarij had taken Yamama, which is in Central Arabia, how Muhallab had taken Isfahan, how Ibn Khazm had taken Khorasan. We mentioned all these stories in the past. He said he had done just as much as these guys did. He had taken Iraq. Only difference between him and these other guys According to according to Mukhtar, was that he got he managed to not just take take land for himself, uh, establish his own dominion, but he also got revenge for Hussein ibn Ali and for the events at Karbala, where everybody else was just standing still and fighting each other. So that's how he, that's what he said to justify his actions. <laughs> 